Good morning. Good to see each one of you here this morning. So glad that you're with us. All of you that are joining us online, welcome. We're glad that you're with us as well. The book of Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul encourages us to set our hearts on things above and to set our minds on things above where Christ rules and reigns because Christ has died for us and he lives in us and we are in him. And so we come here each week to do exactly that, to set our minds straight, to uh, remind ourselves of who God is, what he's done for us, so that then when we go out those doors again, we can be ambassadors of Christ. So I invite you this morning to stand and let's begin to reminding ourselves of the amazing grace that God has given us. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. 
thank you that your amazing grace is what has drawn us to you and that you have uh, taken our place and that you have allowed us to live this new life through you. So we stand here in your presence this morning rejoicing in the great God that you are, the awesome God that you are. And we thank you for uh, bringing us here this morning and allowing us to enter your presence and sing your praises. Now as we give our tithes and our offerings, we do it as an act of worship and we uh, give them to you and thank you that you provide for us our daily resources and we give this back to you to say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Ushers, would you come and receive the morning offering? I search the world, but it couldn't fill me. A man's empty praise and treasures that fade are never enough. And you came along and you put me back together. Nothing is better 
You turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn mourning to dancing. You give beauty for ashes. You turn shame into glory. You're the only one who can. You turn graves into gardens. You turn graves into gardens. You turn bones into armies. You turn seas into highways. You're the only
amazing love that welcomes me. The kindness of mercy that bond with love for heart and my soul and his As we sing, God is so good. You're so good, 
Think for a moment of the goodness of God. That from eternity past, He looked forward to be able to see you, to value you, to know you by name, to call you His own. And to send his son Jesus to pay the penalty for your sin that you might be in relationship with him. We would not know God unless he first loved us. And that love was demonstrated at the cross. And as God's kids, and out of obedience, we gather together to be able to to honor him. To honor Jesus who has given us that gift of eternal life. It's ours now. And it all comes down to one thing. Love. Let's hold up the bread and if you would consider this, this piece of bread that we have in our hand is a, a memorial, a reminder. As Jesus took the bread the night before he died he broke it and he gave it to his disciples and he said this bread this bread that you hold represents my body that will be sacrificed on your behalf the disciples were clueless but they went along with it but imagine what it would be like not 24 hours later when they saw that body of Jesus and how they would be reminded of that piece of bread. And Jesus said, as often as you eat this bread, remember me. Remember me. Remember the love. Remember the sacrifice. And that pain and that suffering that I went through, I did so because I love you. Let's thank the Lord for that. God, we thank you for this bread and all that it represents. Lord Jesus, we acknowledge the fact that it's our sins that separate us from you. And the penalty for that sin is death. But Lord Jesus, you paid that penalty on the cross to give us life. You took upon yourself, upon your body, the full wrath of your Father so that we might live. To give us freedom to continue in sin, may it never be. But to live in that newness of life. We thank you for this bread and all that it means in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take it together. Jesus took up the third cup of the Passover meal. The cup of redemption. 
And he lifted the glass and he says, this cup represents a new covenant. A new covenant between me and you. A new kind of relationship. Not one bound by law. Not one that's bound by works, but bound by grace. We don't work our way into heaven. We don't work our way out. Why? Because salvation is a grace gift. It's a gift that's free to us, but it costs Jesus everything. Because He shed His blood to forgive us of our sins and wash us and make us clean. And you stand or sit before a holy God even now, pure because of the blood of Jesus. And as often as we drink this cup, we are reminded of the holiness that has been put upon us, the righteousness of Christ that clothes us. May we live that way. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this cup and all that it reminds us of. The goodness that you've given to us, the love and the grace that has been poured out over us and continues to pour out over our lives every day. Lord, forgive us when we step outside of that, when we frustrate that, that, that love. But you keep on loving us anyways. We thank you that this covenant is ratified by your blood, unchangeable. And as we partake of this cup, may we enjoy the grace gift that you've given to us, Lord Jesus. Until that day, we see you again. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all drink from the cup. Thank you, Lord. As is part of our practice and a response, because communion is a response, it's a worship response to what God's done. Once a month, we take up a very special offering. It's a benevolent offering. It's where we can give out and give back. You may be seated, by the way, if you'd like. Um, the ushers are going to come, come forward, and this is, this is a fund that goes in and helps take care of people's needs, whether it's medicine or doctor's bills or a ramp for handicap or whatever. As the Lord has blessed us, may we bless others. God, we thank you for this offering and all that it represents it's, it's our love gift to one another. God, we love you with our heart, soul, and mind and our being. And you've called us to love one another. May we do that well and, and help to relieve some of the, the stress in the lives of other people. May you bless this offering, the giver and the gift. And may you funnel these funds to your appointed person. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. How great the that may be Jesus. How high the mountain I could not climb. In desperation, I turned to heaven and spoke your name into the night. Then through the darkness, your love.
Jesus' trials and crucifixion. And we come to Matthew 23, and this chapter is a unique chapter. And you look at the chapter and the, and the context of the chapter, and it, you go, well, where does it really fit in? Jesus brings up this topic in, in the last week of his life, basically, uh, here on earth. And it's a topic of hypocrisy. You're going, great. Really? I got to tell you, and I say this in the most loving way, we're all hypocrites, aren't we? I mean, we think about hypocrisy and all of that, and we struggle because what we say and what we do doesn't always line up necessarily with what we believe. And there's a level of hypocrisy by the clearest definition that we all fall into. But I can tell you this, as we work through this passage, looking at this, here's the challenge. As we go through this, you're going to go, I don't like this passage. I don't like, there are some chapters in the Bible you want to go, let's just take that one out. I don't want that one in there. If you're worried, if you are convicted of the hypocrisy that is in your own life, good. If you do not consider yourself or or in your life any level of hypocrisy exists, you better pay attention. Because if you're not worried about living an inconsistent spiritual life, then... That's where this is, because Jesus is not addressing those that are concerned about, you know, the challenges of, 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 of consistency and, and spiritual inconsistency, but he's really addressing those that are intentionally being hypocrites, that are intentionally being fake. And so as we move through this, he is speaking to two different groups. He's going to speak to a group of the crowds and his disciples to lay out who the hypocrites are. And he's saying, don't be like them. And then he turns around and he will give seven woes to those that are clueless and remain clueless. According to a poll that Zondervan had taken in 2017, modern people contend that The greatest proof that God does not exist is the behavior of self-professing Christians. In other words, the unbeliever says God does not exist because believers' behavior. And you may come across people who say, well, I don't want to go to church because it's full of a bunch of hypocrites. I don't want to hang around other people, these Christians, because they're all hypocrites. And in their mind... Bad Christian behavior is proof that God doesn't exist because if you really believed in God, you wouldn't behave the way that you do. And I think there's some logic in that, within that challenge with us, because it really is equating to belief. There was a pastor that made a habit of walking to church. It was a small community, and he would walk to church just praying over the houses in his small community. It was a small little community church, and he'd walk through the through the community to his church just down the street and a family had shown up that morning and one is one of the little kids that lived in the house that he knew came into the church and the pastor went to the son and says is is everything okay are you are you doing okay 
what was all that, that cussing and, and yelling that was coming out of your house this morning? And the child said, oh, that was daddy. He was late for church and couldn't find his Bible. <laughs> Robert Murray McShane had said this. It's the mark of a hypocrite to be a Christian everywhere but home. And isn't that true? We can put on a pretty good show out in the community. But who are we like in our home? And so while Jesus is speaking to the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, he's also challenging us to, to check ourselves. Hypocrisy is a dangerous and destructive behavior. And we should always be on guard. Because there is, at some level in all of our lives, this level of hypocrisy that is there. And we need to really check ourselves within that and call ourselves into account with these things. And, and some of the descriptors that Jesus gives to this, hypocrisy is never a good behavior. And Jesus holds hypocrisy in contempt. It is a high form of, of, of judgment because many times our hypocrisy will keep people, as we'll see, from the kingdom of heaven. Why is hypocrisy so bad? Because it, it, it triggers three, or it's triggered from, hypocrisy is a behavior that is triggered from three behaviors. Pride, greed, and self-indulgence. You can trace hypocrisy, the behavior of hypocrisy, between pride, greed, or self-indulgence, as we're going to see. And we all struggle with all of those emotions. And because we struggle with those emotions, the hypocrisy will leak out within some. Somebody treats us in a certain way, we'll act prideful. We want what we want, we'll be greedy. Or we feel entitled, we'll be self-indulgent. John Calvin said this, Hypocrisy can plunge the mind of a man into a dark abyss, when he believes his own self-flattery instead of God's verdict. Instead of us being judge and jury of ourselves, we really need to believe what God says about us, don't we? Because his, his, his judgment of us is going to be true. And, and while, yes, we are saved by grace, your salvation doesn't give you a license to behave any way you want to. It, it is a calling. And so within this, so as Jesus, as I said, is in his last week of his Passion Week, he's in essence putting Israel, the nation, and the leadership of Israel on trial. This chapter reads much like a prosecutor, judge, and executioner all in one. And so, it, 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 again, it, it reads kind of like a court. I know we've stood it a little bit, but out of, out of honor for God's Word, let's stand as we read through the passage of chapter 23. Pay attention to the words, because the Holy Spirit needs to be the teacher this morning. In verse 1 it says, And then Jesus spoke to the crowd and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Therefore, all that they tell you to do, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they are saying things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all of their deeds to be noticed by men, 
For they brought in their phylacteries and they lengthened the tassels on their garments. They loved the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. But do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called leaders, for one is your leader, that is Christ. But the great among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses and pretense you make long prayers, and therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on a sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he's obligated. You blind men. Which is more important, the offering or the altar and the sacrificing? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe the mint and the dill and the cumin... But you've neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting others. You blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow at a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear to be beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in those days of our fathers, we would not be partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets and fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in the synagogues and persecute from the city to city. So upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakai, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. 
Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May God bless the reading of his word. You can be seated. Wow. Do you think Jesus is a little mad? That's kind of like the worst scolding. I mean, you could just see these guys. If it was me, I'd be shrinking. I'd be, oh my goodness. That's tough words. That's, that's hard as we take a look at this. As Jesus addresses this in verses 1 through 12, the one thing that Jesus does in his opening statements of this prosecution is he reveals what the source of hypocrisy is. This greed and this self-indulgence. I want what I want now, at least cost to self. I deserve it. I'm entitled to it. You owe me, based on my stage or whoever I am in this. And as Jesus is instructing his, his followers, he's saying, watch out for these guys that have this saying, do as I say, not as I do. Now, I know we don't have anybody in our leadership like that today. But it's true. Do as I say, not as I do. Or rules for thee, but not for me. The hypocrisy of establishing laws and rules and regulations that will apply to everybody else to keep them under oppression. But I myself am not going to follow them because, quite frankly, I'm above it. I made the rules. You guys all know the story behind the golden rule. He who has the gold makes the rules. The Pharisees and the scribes had all risen to this level of position of leadership. And we've got to understand the Near East culture. They would be equal to the Jewish political party. They were the ones that were in charge of life for Israel. So as Jesus is addressing them... He's not just addressing the religious leadership. He's also addressing the social and the legal leadership of the Jewish people and the abuse, the abuse that's taking place in this. And in verses 1 through 4, he's going over this topic. They say and they do not do. Now, by this time, there's a lot of religious leaders that had left the crowd. And keep in mind, Jesus is looking at his trials just in a couple of days. But prior to Jesus going on trial by the Sanhedrin, the religious party and the rulers, he puts them on trial in front of the public and the crowd. And so, as I said, this section is kind of like an opening statement where he's condemning the Pharisees. Now, not all Pharisees are condemned. We all know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He came to Jesus at night, learned about who Jesus was, and came to faith. He's talking about the overarching class. But there were some Pharisees in there that were okay people. But he's talking about the practice of Pharisees as a general rule in this office. Now, about the Pharisees, they were the ones that were the interpreters of the law. They received the law and then they would ter interpret the law based on the written word and oral tradition. They, there was a place in the synagogue, a stone bench, and it was called the seat of Moses. The seat of Moses would be like the judgment seat 
where the, the Pharisees would sit within the synagogue, wherever the synagogues were, they would sit there, and that was considered the place of honor, but also the place of interpretation. So you would sit there, and then you would discuss the law. Synagogue is a little bit different than what church is like today, because they would get together and they would discuss the law and the application of the law from the rabbis. And so they would be in, in that place of teaching. And so within this, it, and it was a place that God had established. In fact, in Deuteronomy 17.10, it says, You shall do according to the terms of the verdict, which they will declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses, and you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you. So Moses had said there was going to be a place where general public would go and they would hear from the person that sits at that place. And so they would take the law and they were supposed to rightly interpret the law for the people. Not a bad thing, is it? To be able to do this? These, these guys were supposed to be students, much like what I do. And I spend easily uh, anywhere between 15, 16 hours a week just to get ready for Sunday. And then I give to you in about 40 minutes or so the, what God has taught me in that 15, 16 hour period to be able to do that. But the reality is you should hear it and you should check it to make sure it's so. Make sure it's right. Make sure it's scriptural. And God forbid I do anything to lead you astray or to bring you to a place that, that would keep you from the kingdom. Now, understand... What they were doing is they would preach the law or the interpretation of the law, but they wouldn't live their lives according to what they preach. Now, they were not what's called antinomial or against the law. They believed in the law. They just believed the law was good for everybody else. And they developed this kind of hierarchical position of, of, of being above the law and and. Do as I say, not as I do, or not practicing, as Jesus would say. They don't practice what they preach. For example, what would they do? They would give in the law a burden. They would make the law a burden. They would place on people's shoulders the burden of that law, like, you've got to do this and this and this and this and this. But they wouldn't lift a finger to help. And you've got to pick up on the verbal clues that Jesus used. They place a burden on your shoulder for you to carry, but they don't lift a finger to help you with that. To be able to give to you this uncompassionate legalism, which is what they had come to. It was, they had absolutely no empathy for the common person to, to bear up underneath this legalism that they laid upon them within this. And so there was this, this uncompassionate legalism that is a clear mark of hypocrisy. To be able to put this upon somebody and say, you have to bear this burden. But I'm outside of that, so I really don't have to. Now, mind you, the original law was not oppressive. God did not give the law in order to put a burden upon anybody. The law was meant to be a mirror to show us our sin. That's all it is. It's a standard of perfection that reveals our sin and our need for a Savior. But what the Pharisees had done is they had taken this law 
and they had converted into works-based salvation. In other words, if you obey everything in the law perfectly, then you'll be saved. The fact of the matter is nobody can. Nobody can obey the law perfectly at all. But they were given this, this converted idea, this legalism, and it was all based on their, their interpretation. So what they did is they perverted the law based on their own interpretation. And then that burden that they would place upon people wasn't the law itself, but it was human interpretation of that law. Do you follow? So when we take a look at God's intent, God's intent was for restoration, not to put us under legalism. And Acts, we would read, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Religion should never be a heavy yoke. Religion reveals to us our need for a relationship with God. So we look at we look at the religion and it's the standard, but the standard is not going to save us. Jesus is going to save us. And so what they had done is they created religion or a man-made way to appear to be saved. But they're always going to be in conflict and they're always going to fall short. Always. Within this. Jesus didn't come to place a heavy burden on anybody. In fact, Jesus does exactly the opposite. He lifts that burden. In Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, it says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke of the Pharisees was legalism and the law and trying to measure up and, and the guilt and the shame of knowing that you'll never measure up. And the yoke of Jesus is easy because he says, look, I want to help you. In fact, I'm going to lift the burden of the law off of you because I'm going to die in your place to fulfill the penalty from that law. And I'm going to lift that off of you. The yoke that I'm going to give to you is to walk with me. And I want you to imagine yourself, the yoke of the Pharisees was the law that is placed upon somebody to drag around the guilt and the shame that you'll never measure up. And the yoke that Jesus puts upon you is a double yoke because it's you and Jesus as you walk through life. And that's why it's easy. And that's why it's light. Because Jesus carries the load for you with you. He doesn't leave you off to try to figure it out on your own. But the Pharisees were yoking people saying, here it is. This is the way you've got to live within this. Verses 5 through 7 tells us that they did it all for show. They, they viewed themselves on stage all the time and under the pretense and they were practicing their religion as if it were a performance. They would dress a certain way. They would they would to show their holiness within this. And so Jesus says they wear their phylacteries and their tassels. They would make them large. In fact, I have a picture that I want to show you of what they would look like. This is a, mo- a picture of a modern-day Orthodox 
Jew. And what he is wearing, as you can see on the box above his head, is what's called a phylactery. There would be that large box on his head. It would be strapped with leather straps. And then you can also see one that was put on his hand. And the straps that would go up the shoulder. Within the phylacteries of, of this are the scriptures on a small scroll. Exodus chapter 13, 2 to 16. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, which is the great Shema. And Deuteronomy 11, 13 to 21. So in the box are scriptures. And those scriptures basically say that God's word needs to guide your thoughts and guide your actions. They took it literal. Bind these words to your mind and to your hands. And they took it literal. And they would put these on. And this happens today. And then they would put the prayer shawl on. Now the prayer shawl, they would cover their heads. Jesus would have the shawl. In fact, the woman that needed to touch his, 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 his cloak, that's what she was trying to touch. But in this... In the prayer shawl is a series of tassels, and in the tassels are knots. Much like in Roman Catholicism, where they would have a rosary, in Judaism, they would use those tassels to keep track of their prayers, By they would count the knots. They would go through, and each knot was a different prayer that they would pray. And so what the Pharisees would do is they would wear this all the time. They would wear their shawl, and then when it came time to go pray, then they would put these things on. I've been on airplanes going to Israel and seeing that happen. Western Wall, I've been able to see that happen in all of these things. And, and so they would walk through this. They would walk through what's called the Zizith. That, that's the knots that was in this. And what they would do is they would make them large. Oh, man, that guy's really holy. Check out the size of the box on his head. Look at the robe that that guy's got. And, and so... They would dress to impress. They would wear the robes. They would wear these things. Why? Because they would stick out from the crowd. They wanted to stick out and be different. To, note it, to be noticed within this. And they loved the public greeting. And they loved the best seat. They would come in and they would go, that's my seat. In fact, Jesus says they loved the high seats. They loved the seat up front. They loved the seat on the stage. They loved the high seat. And if they went into the, the banquet, they would always look for the best spot, the reserved seating. Why? Because I'm a Pharisee and I deserve it. They would love to go into the marketplaces and be called rabbi. Rabbi! And they were very big on titles within the context of, of this. It, it would be kind of like those today that are all puffed up with pride. And you say, hi, how you doing? How are you doing, Carrie? No, I'm sorry. You must call me Reverend Carrie. I have a plaque in my office that says Reverend Carrie. I can tell you there is nothing reverend about me. <laughs> Titles. When someone demands a title, you must call me doctor. A, a, a doctor of what? Do I get to fill in the blank? When someone demands a title, why are they demanding the title? Out of pride within this. And they seek the public worship. The title rabbi means my great one. The, the, the title of father really is, is something that's reserved for God. Or, or these teachers that are there, great instructor. People that demand these titles 
are really puffing themselves up full of pride and they're leading themselves down astray and leading others astray within this. And he instructs them and he instructs the crowd, do what they teach you to do. Why? Because they're sitting in the seat of Moses and they're giving you God's word. But don't follow their actions. Jesus doesn't discount the word that they bring because they would read straight from the Torah. Well, he says, as for their application, don't do it. Don't do it. Then how should I be? If I'm not going to be like them, how should I be? Be the servant of all. Be humble. Demonstrate humble servant leadership just like Jesus. And in Mark 10, 45, it says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So in his opening statement, he declares what they shouldn't be like and what they should be like. And when it comes down to the greatest rabbi, look at Jesus. The greatest teacher, look at Jesus. And serve like Jesus served. Well, Jesus closes his, his opening statement and now gets into the prosecution. In verses 13 to 36, he goes through these condemnations, the seven woes of hypocrisy. This could be a sermon unto itself. We're going to go through it rather quickly. But understand, these are seven woes that touch on these seven points of hypocrisy. Are they all, the, or is this the only levels of hypocrisy? No, there's probably a bunch more. This is just a sampling. So if you were to take a look at things, these are charges against the, the, the leadership within this. And these seven woes. These blind leaders of the blind. Notice he addresses each one. You scribe, woe to you, scribes and you Pharisees, hypocrites. And then that pattern, and then he declares what it is. So, woe number one, verses 13 to 14. You are a hypocrite. Woe to you. Why? Because you're shutting the door and keeping people from entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were supposed to be people that lead people into the kingdom of heaven. But they weren't. They were keeping people out. Specifically, in Jesus' day, what were they doing? Well, Jesus brought the kingdom of heaven. He is the kingdom of heaven. And by the scribes and the Pharisees rejecting Jesus, they're keeping people out of the kingdom of heaven. They didn't want, them to, they didn't want the people to know Jesus. They didn't want to bring people into a relationship with Jesus as Messiah. They rejected him. They wanted the people to stay stuck under the law. And he says, woe to you, because you're keeping people from coming to know me. Now, is that something worthy of condemnation? Yes. Imagine a religious leader that is keeping people from knowing God. Is that worthy of condemnation? Yes. Why? Because you teach another religion. You're not teaching people to know God. You're teaching people to fall under your false or your fake religion. And so Jesus condemns them of this legalism. Why? Because they were teaching the religion of legalism. And the irony is this. Jesus says, you're keeping people out of the kingdom and you yourselves are outside of the kingdom. You don't even know. You're on the outside. In your Bibles, verse 14 is bracketed. And if you ever wonder why it's bracketed that way, 
It's bracketed that way because it's not in the original manuscripts. It was added later by scribes. And if you take a look at what's called textual criticism, when you look at the original scripts of Scripture, it's not there. It was added later um, because what they were trying to do is they were, some of the scribes were trying to make things make sense. So it's bracketed in your Bibles. Um, and we're not going to unpack it. We're just going to kind of leave it out there. Because it doesn't fit within the woes. But some, some people would. There's, there's probably a good saying about it, but we'll, we'll just kind of leave it there. But what is the second woe? It's in verse 15. Woe to you guys, you hypocrites. Why? Because you're creating converts of your false, false religion. Not only are you keeping people out because of your false religion, but you're going around and making converts. Why? What were they doing? They were going around to the land and the sea, everywhere they can go and try to make proselytes unto their religion. We call that cults. Right? I've got a false religion and I'm going to go make converts. I'm going to go and do this. You need to follow the religion of the Pharisees because we have the real truth. We have the whole truth. And it's all about the law. The problem with that is this. Well, they started with something that was pure, which is the law of God. They misinterpreted it based on human interpretation. And then their converts then would interpret it based on their interpretation, and then further and further down the line. So what happens is, the original word of God, which was holy, that they were caretakers of, becomes prostituted under human interpretation. And Jesus says, those that do that are twice as much sons of hell as you are. Because the converts were taking people further and further away and, and converting people. So the, the, the next generation is the worst. And so what we see is a degeneration. When you take a look at many cults, they do that and they go further and further and further away from the truth and cause more and more destruction. Appearing to be true, they become liars and more liars and more liars. Have you ever known somebody that started believing their own lies and just go on and go on and go on and go on and go on? Right? Horrible. Third woe, 16 to 22. In 16 to 22, the condemnation is to the blind guides. This is a different statement. He says, to the blind guides, and he says, you fools. Now, Jesus, earlier in Matthew 15, verse 14, he says, Let them alone, they are blind guides of the blind, and if a blind man guides a blind man, they both fall into a pit. The offense of the pharisaical system was this. They were taking oaths against people. They were, they were doing it. So, not only do we believe this, but we swear by this. Now, the problem with this oath-taking, and Jesus would talk about it on the Sermon on the Mount, we'll get to that in a minute, but is this, the offense of the pharisaical practice of oath-taking is mentioned here in three categories. One is the temple and the gold. Two is the altar and the sacrifice on it. And three, swearing by heaven and the throne on it. And I want you to be able to see how the swearing or the oath-taking works. It is not like you're going before a court and saying, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. That's not the kind of oath-taking that they were saying. They're saying, you need to believe me, and I'm going to hold the temple and the gold of the temple as collateral for my truth. 
Question, who owns the temple and the gold of the temple? Who does that belong to? God. Is it theirs to put in collateral for their word? No. And then it gets worse because he says, then they'll say, well, I swear by the altar and the sacrifice on it. Well, now you're swearing by the one thing that connects man's heart to God, the altar. Who does the altar belong to? God. It's not theirs. And then they say, well, I swear by the throne of heaven. You need to believe what I say. I swear by the throne of heaven. Well, now you're swearing by God himself. God. You are my collateral that my word is true. Can we obligate as collateral anything that belongs to God? The answer is what? No. So Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount would say this in Matthew 5, 33 to 37. He says this, again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make a false vow, but you shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white, although my kids have done that, I think, or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, no, no. Anything beyond these is evil. So what is Jesus saying? You need to hold to the truth. But a a, a hypocrite is going to have to say, I swear, believe me. Now, that's a clue. You should have character that says your word should be true. The fourth one, which in, and, and this is written chiastic, the fourth woe is you're misrepresenting God's word and God's values in verses 23 to 24. How are they doing that? Well, this woe has to do with majoring on the minors. He says you tithe the mint and the cumin, which are the smallest measures of things that you can tithe to. They would take one-tenth of mint or one-tenth of a spice and say, this is my worship to God. But Jesus says, but you're neglecting the majors. Now, while in Leviticus they're told to tithe, thus all the tithe of the land, the seed of the land, of the fruit of the land is the Lord's. And it's holy unto the Lord. God had set up the tithe where you take one-tenth of what God has provided and you give it to the Lord. That's biblical. To be able to take one-tenth of what you have been provided and give it to the Lord. But what they did was, they said, look at how holy we are because we're tithing these physical things, one-tenth. But Jesus says, you're neglecting the major. What is the major? The major aspect that God calls us to is mercy, justice, and and faithfulness towards one another. In other words, you're tithing, you're paying your tithe, but you're neglecting the people. You're not taking care of people. You don't care about people. But you're paying your bill. That's hypocrisy. That's hypocrisy. To give the pretense that that you are neglecting these things. Micah 6.8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good, What does the Lord require of you? Notice, to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. I can tell you this. 
God doesn't care, first and foremost, how much money you give to the church. God cares how you treat other people. That is the major. Do not neglect people. Do not think that I can write a check to the church and treat other people like crud. That's hypocrisy. You're not buying God's good grace by writing a big check to the church and then treating people poorly. And that was the hypocrisy that was going on because the Pharisees would tithe these things and then they would treat people poorly. They would look down upon them. The widow, the orphan, the stranger. They would walk by them and treat them as second class, third class, and worthless. And that is, that is true hypocrisy. That's why it's the major woe out of all of them. And Jesus judges them. And he says, here's what you do. You strain at a gnat and swallow at a camel. And you say, well, what's the difference with that? Both a gnat and a camel are unclean according to Jewish law. But you will grit your teeth so no gnat goes into your mouth. But you'll swallow a camel. In other words, you'll strain at the smallest things, but you are willing to swallow the big things with no problem. You need to check yourself. The fifth woe. You, pack, you practice the pretense of, of, of purity. In other words, you, you, you work on keeping the outside with the appearance of being holy, but you're not working on the inside. The outside of the cup is clean, but the inside is dirty. Wash the inside first. Outside will take care of itself. As a Christ follower, we need to be washed by the Word of God. We need the wash by the Spirit of God, and He needs to check our hearts. We need to work on the inside. But so many times we worry about the outside. What do people think about me? I'll tell you the better question. What does God think about you? Because He sees the inside. The sixth woe is verses 27 to 28. You, you have this false appearance of of. And hiding your uncleanness and this deadness. He says you are whited sepulchers. In the month of Adar, which was the month preceding the month that Passover was in, it was Jewish custom to go and wash, whitewash or paint the tombs. Why? Because the pilgrims coming into Jerusalem at Passover could touch or walk across a grave and then they would be unclean for the Passover. So they said, let's, wash the, let's whitewash the outside tombs so no one's unclean so they can come and worship. Within this, he says, you are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're full of deadness on the inside. You spend so much time working on these things. Paul would use the same condemnation in 23, verse 3. He said to this, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you still sit to try me according to the law and the violation of the law over me to be struck? In other words, Paul was on trial and he says, you are nothing but whitewashed tombs because you're Try me by the law, but you are guilty on the inside. And he condemned them of their hypocrisy and their lawlessness. The seventh and, and last woe is this false representation. Verses 29 to 32, he says, You give the pretense that you're better than the previous generation. What were they doing? They said, look at all the ways that we've changed. We've progressed as a people. We make great monuments unto the prophets. That our forefathers killed. 
And Jesus says, you guys are fakes. You say, if you were there, you wouldn't have killed the prophets. Why does Jesus say that? Because what was in their mind at that moment? Killing Jesus. They already made the plan. And Jesus says, just to prove it, I will send you in the future. Wise men, teachers, prophets. And what did they do? They started killing the church. Starting with Stephen. And James. And they would continue to kill. Why? Because it was murderous in their heart. Because their agenda, their narrative, didn't fit the narrative of the Pharisees. And they wanted to destroy them. With endless. And the verdict was against them. They were hypocrites. And Jesus would prove that out within them. They would kill him and the early church. And verses 33 to 36, Jesus finalizes this with their verdict. This is the verdict. You are sons of the devil. You are sons of the devil. You are serpents and brood of vipers. In John 8, 44, he says, you serpents, brood of vipers. And this is his title. Your father, the devil, you want to do as the desires of your father's. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Wherever he speaks of a lie, he speaks of his own nature for he is a liar and the father of lies. And he says the rhetorical question, how are you going to escape this verdict? The answer is what? You're not. You're guilty. And through the opening statement, through the prosecution, and now the judgment, you are guilty. You are guilty just as your forefathers, from Abel all the way to Zechariah. Who was Zechariah? Zechariah was the priest that was killed because he prophesied against Judah in their destruction. Abel, the first righteous one that was killed by Cain in that time frame. And they're going to do it again. Are Christians getting killed today? Absolutely. Check out Voices of the Martyrs. What is the result of that? Verses 37 to 39, it breaks Jesus' heart. Jesus laments over Jerusalem and their failure to repent. He, he looks at this and, and as judge, I'm sorry, as prosecutor and judge and jury and executioner, it breaks his heart. And he looks and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I would want you to come back. But you were unwilling. Here is attention. Divine will, I want you to repent. Human will. No. And they live in tension. It is God's desire that all would be saved. But it doesn't violate human will that says no. And here we see Jesus broken hearted and lamenting over the nation. Wanting to gather them in. So what does he do in his judgment? He withdraws his protection. Desolation is coming. We know in 70 A.D. Jerusalem was destroyed. The hand was removed from the nation. Fulfills Jeremiah 22.5. But if you will not obey these words, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that this house will become desolate. And the second thing he does as the judgment, he withdraws his presence. And he quotes Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the Lord. What does he say? Your house will become desolate and you won't see me again until judgment day. My second coming. Could you imagine where Jesus would say, you want this? You got it. And you get everything along with it. There is a time, a limit 
when man's sinfulness hits that wall where God says, I am removing my presence and my protection and you're not going to see me again until judgment. God forbid that that happens to any of you or any of me or the people we love. May we listen to the words of Jesus. May we listen to the importance of God's Word and do what God says and not get messed up by people that are getting it wrong. Follow after Him. We all have this this tension of of struggling, of, of, of doing the right thing. But do the right thing because it's what God is doing in your heart, not because it's some religious box that you have to fit in. And how do we know that we're falling in that trap? Greed, pride, or self-indulgence. That's what we need to check our hearts with. And not follow after those that are following after that. Let God be the judge of them. And may I listen to the words of God that He judges my heart. And in the end, what we want to hear is, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray. God, I thank You. I thank You for the time that we can get into Your Word. We can move through this. Lord, I know that there is just a ton here that You spoke. But in the end, in the end, we need to check ourselves in in the level of hypocrisy in our life to avoid that judgment. God, we know that hypocrisy is dangerous and destructive. And may we turn towards you, surrender ourselves, confess our sin, our rebellious. May we confess that sin of hypocrisy, and may you change us from the inside out. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Your
God, may our lives sing of that, that love. May our actions reflect your mercy that has been demonstrated in our we lives. We pray for us. God, we thank you as we go out. May we go out in the strength and the knowledge of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit to accomplish all that you've called us to, to walk in the grace and the mercy and the truth of your word in a genuine relationship. Lord, may everything that we say and do make you smile in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen and Praise Jesus. Thanks for joining us in the study of God's Word with Pastor Kerry Wacker. We'd love to have you join us in person for worship each Sunday morning at 9 a.m. or 1045 a.m. We also meet Wednesday nights at 630 p.m. Warren Community Fellowship is located at 56523 Columbia River Highway in Warren, Oregon, between Scappoose and St. Helens. For more information about Warren Community Fellowship or about WCF Ministries, call us at 503-397-4387. And don't forget to like us on Facebook.